Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today we'll be talking with Daniel Rekshafen about his books, The Way of Mindful Education, Cultivating Well-Being in Teachers and Students, and The Mindful Education Workbook, Lessons for Teaching Mindfulness to Students. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Trevor. I'm wondering if we can begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. I would be happy to. So the work that I do is you know, bringing mindfulness and social-emotional learning into schools. And I really I started the work um, as a, I'm a marriage and family therapist and uh, worked for many years as a school therapist. And in teaching, uh, working with kids uh, and working with all the different things that listeners will identify with, I'm sure, of, of kids with, you know, rising ADHD and anxiety and um, all types of the dysregulation that we see in, in many students. Um, I started uh, about 10 years ago, started utilizing mindfulness practices to see if I could help kids relax, be more present, um, be more self-compassionate when they're, you know, all of the inner, inner critical voices. Um, and I had... I had really developed these mindfulness practices myself. Um, my parents uh, practiced mindfulness and taught it to me when I was when I was dealing with my own anxiety as a kid. And so um, it's something that I've grew, grown up with and have really studied my whole life. Real, really studying my my inner world. Um, and so when I was doing it. About 10 years ago in schools out here in the California Bay Area where I live, I didn't know if anybody else had ever tried this. I didn't know if um, this was something that was really done with with kids other than my parents teaching it to me. Um, But I found some really remarkable results from uh, the individuals and the groups that I was was working with. Um, And soon after that, there's an organization called Mindful Schools that I, I was one of the first uh, first teachers um, in that was kind of going throughout the Oakland and um, Berkeley and San Francisco schools, starting to teach mindfulness to to kids, and then eventually to starting to do a lot of teaching to um, to teachers to understand how to create a, a better kind of healthy learning environment. Um, and so I've, I've been, you know, now mindfulness in education is is a is a meme and is something that's moving around. And so I've, I've luckily gotten on the, on the ride early and I've gotten to see how it's, how it's developing, how it is. Um, I run a conference in New York every year as well. Um, and have sort of really gotten to watch the, the movement of bringing in these different types of mindfulness practices into classrooms for teachers and kids. And, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing to, to see it actually catching, catching hold. I was wondering if you could tell us more about um, how you came to work in schools and which of your experiences as, as either a student or a teacher 
have most informed uh, your views on what the purpose of education is? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I my upbringing is an interesting one in that I was I was raised at a place called the Omega Institute, which is a um, is something of a mindfulness center. Uh, it's a place that my parents founded, actually, and um, it's a place where there's a lot of mindfulness teachers and um, people teaching different types of um, embodiment practices and, uh, you know, just different ways to be more connected to ourselves, bit of a, a new age, a new age center. And so I kind of grew up around that. I grew up around all of these amazing teachers and um, and for me, uh, I really, I kind of drank that in, you know, as a, since I was young, I was very interested in kind of the philosophical life. I went to, to, you know, to college studying philosophy. I've always been somebody who's just very, very, uh, interested in kind of asking the big questions of life. And then at the same time, I went to, you know, regular public school and in my public school, that was not, that was not what was, uh, so there's the multiple intelligences and mm-hmm. the kind of more existential intelligence. It was not something that was valued. So I felt like I never quite um, knew how to connect in school. I don't, I, I'm never been big on like the, being able to memorize things. And so I, I, I'm, I learn. I'm a very, I'm a smart guy, but I'm not, you know, the kind of intelligence that is favored in most of our educational systems. Um, was not really where I excelled. And so I, I never really felt like my teachers really, I never felt very inspired. I never felt like very connected. I, um, so I had, a, I had these kind of two different parts of myself, the part of me that was growing up at Omega around these, you know, very, very amazing heart-centered, uh, compassionate people where I felt very attuned to and I felt very appreciated. And then I was in public school where I kind of felt like something of a number I didn't feel like they were trying to support me to become the best that I can. And and I, I really feel like, you know, I went to, to college at a school that was a school called St. John's, which is in New Mexico, which is all about, um, you know, you, in these in that school, you only learn kind of original texts and the, the professors, they don't, they never lecture. They only kind of bring up questions and you kind of discuss the different topics. It's kind of a seminar style. And, and then I started really thriving and I started learning a new kind of form of education, which was more about, um, you know, the definition of education, which is, which is bringing out from within. So like starting to educate to support the, you know, who you really are and how you can truly thrive rather than having the, um, the model of education where we take you know, our facts that we need our kids to memorize and we stamp it on them and then we make them uh, repeat it, which which very often is not what is going to support the best that's within a student or to create health or well-being. And and so for me, I really, you know, have, have my journey as an individual um, has really been to, to merge these two parts of myself, the part, the omega self, which is much more of a kind of, integrated inner life kind of focused on wellness focused on on healing and then the other part which is more of the uh you know our kind of more rigid academic uh world that i that i live in and how how can these two come together so i can 
um, you know, and then this is what my path has really been through psychology and through teaching mindfulness and teaching social emotional learning is how can we shift educational paradigms so that kids can feel really healthy and relaxed and um, compassionate and connected in the midst of an educational setting where, of course, they need to learn and memorize and all of that, but how to do it in such a way where, uh, where it's bringing out the best inside of them. I imagine you're bringing a lot of your firsthand experiences into these books. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you came to write The Way of Mindful Education as well as the Mindful Education Workbook? Definitely. So, you know, the, when I started teaching uh, mindfulness in the, you know, Oakland, mostly Oakland schools, um, at first it was, it was a bunch of colleagues and I who were in there just kind of seeing what would work. And every time I would do that, I'd come home, come home after working with a bunch of different schools and write down different anecdotes and seeing how it was helping kids transform and be more present and relax. And so I, I, I love writing. So I was always kind of writing those down. Um, and as I was teaching um, the kids, I would have a kind of uh, a, an, an experience that was a little bit sad or frustrating, which is that I would I would go into a classroom, I would teach them how to, you know, sit in this really kind of compassionate, communicative, uh, present moment way. And the, the class would really kind of relax. And, and, um, and then I would leave, and sometimes I would hear the teacher yelling at them, you know, get back in your seats. And I would realize, okay, just a second, yes, it's important to teach the kids, but um, really it would, it's important to teach the teachers. You know, if you have a teacher that's, that's modeling and embodying this sense of, attention, attunement, uh, kindness, then that's where the kids really learn it. Um, so I really shifted primarily to, to, I still work with kids sometimes, but mostly I train teachers and I work with larger school districts uh, school and schools to be able to, to, to work with the administration, to work with the teachers, to figure out how, how we as adults um, can be the embodiment of this. So, so over, over many years, I lead a lot of five-day teacher trainings. I lead, um, I led a year-long teacher training a while back. I have, um, so I, as I was doing all of these, I kept developing, you know, some manuals, different, um, you know, a, a full curriculum. And I was doing this for the teachers that I was working with. And eventually I realized I, I kind of had a book um, <laughs> that just from, from doing all this, and, and there's only so many people who can, uh, you know, fly out. Um, to to somewhere to be able to take a five day training, it's hard to take you know take the time out of our our busy lives. So um, I decided to the first book is a you know it's really an overview of the field of mindfulness and education and some lessons of how to teach this um, in school. So I I, I um, published that with with Norton, um, and then the second book um, was actually um, I really kind of condensed everything. And really turned it more. It's a, a workbook and a um, uh, kind of a manual of how to how to teach this in, in school. So for that book, I think, is is really important. Um, it's something that a, an individual teacher or a whole school could kind of utilize to be able to um, a playbook of how to really bring this into different schools. You mentioned earlier that mindfulness, especially in the last few years, has become kind of a buzzword in, in education. And so I'm wondering if you can distinguish a little bit between uh, how you define mindfulness with uh, maybe some misconceptions about what mindfulness is. I would love to. 
Yeah, I mean, mindfulness, um, and I, I would say that on some, on some level, mindfulness is an evolving term in this moment. Um, and so on some level, it's hard to fully define it because it's a bit of a moving target. Once, now, that, uh, now that the mainstream has gotten a hold of it, um, the definition is, is rapidly changing. Um, you know, there's some kind of classical definitions of mindfulness as, you know, the John Kabat-Zinn uh, definition who created mindfulness-based stress reduction is paying attention on purpose in a particular way non-judgmentally. Or to kind of unpack that a little bit is this kind of idea of, you know, in, in the present moment, opening our, our attention up, being attuned to what's happening inside and outside, and doing that in, in a way where it's a kind of heart-open way. It's a kind of um, accepting what we find. So it's like we're saying yes to the present moment. Um, and, you know, even if there's some sadness in our hearts or some pain or we look around the world as we do and we see tragedies um, and we are able to open our awareness up and be present to it. So it's not, not to say that we are like saying yes, that we like what's happening in Syria or something like that, but we are opening our awareness to it and not being in denial, which very often the kind of foundation of mindfulness is that very often in our lives, we kind of have a bit of a denial streak. There's a way that we want life to be a little bit different than it is, right? We want our partner to be a little different. We want our classroom to be a little different. Um, and there's a way that we are kind of resisting reality. Um, and so mindfulness really um, invites us, and the more we do it, we're kind of, we build these mindfulness muscles. We build our capacity to, to open to the, to the truth of our experience, to all of our emotions, to our sensations, to what we see, what we hear, what we feel around us. Um, and then when we do that and open into something of, you know, in sports, why it's, mindfulness is getting way into sports now is because it actually can enter people into something of a flow state or, or the zone, as they call it, where you're able to be really present to everything that's around you, really attuned. Um, and when we're really attuned, then we can respond really well. So it's not that, you know, we look at our classroom and we're like, oh, kids are misbehaving. I guess we just have to accept that, and that's what it is. No, we actually attune, and we get into this very present moment, attuned state, and then we can respond a lot better and from a place of kindness um, and from a place of presence. One thing I would say about, you you know, you kind of asked about um, the, the kind of misunderstandings of mindfulness. Um, there's a, a lot of them. Uh, one of them is that since it's come into like fortune 500 companies and uh, sports teams and lots of different things, sometimes it gets confused just with focusing practice um, and focusing is, or, or trying to like to just be able to build our kind of achievement. And, and that is a part of mindfulness. And it's one of the reasons why mind, why, you know, the research around mindfulness is so amazing is we're actually finding that mindfulness raises test scores and does all these amazing things to raise attention. Um, but if you don't have that, the compassion side with it, if you don't have this kind of sense of acceptance and heart openness, then you can, you, sometimes there's just this uh, mindfulness as this like, you know, building, you know, working the bottom line and, and getting, mm. getting achievement rather than the, the compassion side, which needs to be involved. Another quick just kind of mis misunderstanding that often happens that I'm very committed to is um, 
when people first do mindfulness, sometimes there's the thought that mindfulness means that like there's no thoughts in your head and that you're just completely and utterly peaceful. Like we see this kind of every picture you see on the cover of a magazine around mindfulness has somebody like totally relaxed and totally happy. Um, and that's, that's often, you know, if you do a lot of mindfulness practice, yes, it, it does generate happiness. It does generate relaxation usually. But in the beginning usually and for a long time when we're practicing mindfulness, it actually opens up. Um, it's, it's something of a truth serum. It makes us feel uh, what we usually don't want to feel. So when you practice mindfulness, it might make you feel really sad or angry or um, and unsettled. And especially when I go into an inner-city Oakland school, or when I'm working with kind of systems of oppression, right? There's a lot of di very difficult systemic issues out in the world. So when I'm teaching mindfulness to kids, I don't just go in and tell them to sit down and be quiet and to, you know, because that, the, the truth of what is really interesting for me with mindfulness is I'm inviting kids to be aware of what is. And what is is often a lot of dysregulation. And so what I'm doing with kids is actually, um, I need to really play mindfulness. I do it in a very fun, very engaging, very uh, way where they can start looking inside uh, and noticing what's there, and to real so that I'm not just—it's not like a pun because it, it can feel kind of punitive if I go in and try to teach mindfulness in such a way where I'm just saying like you have to be quiet, you have to be still, you're supposed to be like having no thoughts, and 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 usually when you start mindfulness, there's a lot of thoughts, there's a lot of feelings, there's a lot going on, and the point of mindfulness is to be able to uh, open enough space and enough awareness to be able to be aware of all of it, rather than because it can be easy for us to judge ourselves if we try to sit and be mindful and our minds are spinning and we're like, huh, I can't do this. There's something wrong with my brain or something. Rather than realizing, no, that's that's mindfulness practice. Mindfulness is actually learning to be present to the kind of dysregulation that that in our modern fast-paced world we all we all can taste and you mentioned you've worked with both young kids as well as adult teachers how is it different supporting students versus teachers with mindfulness um yeah i, I have the privilege of getting to work with you know kindergarten age students and high school students and um school principals you know so i get i get i go the full gamut um I actually feel like teaching kids has really helped me learn uh, how to teach adults because we all are, are <laughs> little kids at heart. Um, and with little kids, you have to really make it fun. Like I always I say how we're, we're playing attention rather than paying attention. And it's really important for us to do these kind of games, and we do it within range. So it's not like I'm just telling kids to be quiet for 10 minutes, which would be outside of their range of capacity. Mm -hmm. So I've really learned to work within their range. So, um, you know, little kids, it's very playful. The older kids get, you know, the at a teenage level or something, they'll be often be able to sit for five or ten minutes or longer just watching their breath or being able to focus in different ways. Um, and, of course, adults can do that um, for much, you know, for longer and actually really become more introspective. But at the same time, I feel like there is across the age range from little kids to adults it's real. I've really learned the importance of keeping within range of, of, you know, usually when I'm doing mindfulness practices with adults, I still only do short, short mindfulness practices where I'm inviting them to notice something about their bodies, their minds, their hearts, about the world around them. So I'm doing it in a short way, and then we're kind of really getting into conversations around it. Um, so it isn't too much for them. Even as adults, sometimes 
trying to look inward for too long, it can be a bit dysregulating. Um, obviously, adults, you know, there's different ways that we all learn. And as adults, often, um, you know, we want to, I go to schools and, and they want to hear about the research. They want to hear about how it fits into different standards and how it work, you know, how this is going to really work and benefit them. And so I, I do have to talk a little bit more cognitively um, to adults to explain to explain why before they're going to trust to be able to look inward and do these practices. Where, where students, it needs to be, I need to start by, by having it be fun in order for them to be able to trust to do the practices. Because what we are doing with mindfulness is we are becoming introspective. We're looking inside. And that can be a vulnerable pra- practice. Um, so first you have to build some, some trust. And with teachers and kids, you know, you do that in different ways. And you're talking about skeptical groups of teachers sometimes who feel like they have to teach to standards or pacing guides or rely on scripted lessons. How are you able to convey what the benefits of mindfulness will be for teachers as well as for their students so that they feel they can integrate these practices? Yeah, it's a a really important question because I know very well that um, the second that, you know, there's the, the new curriculum you know, it comes in, uh, that, that's the last thing that teachers want to hear is that they have to kind of memorize some new curriculum or change the way they're teaching or do, you know, that, that is a, that is a stress inducing experience. And we're definitely trying to, to offer this in a way that it's, um, brings the stress level down rather than up. And for me, I really see, you know, the, the books that I have, the, the teaching, the trainings that I lead, um, there's the personal development part of it and there's the professional development. And we always begin with the personal development. And the personal development piece is very clear for teachers, and it's a pretty easy sell um, where we're saying, you know, everybody, every teacher I work with, you know, whatever, wherever the school is, is dealing with stress, is wanting more time, is wanting to be able to relax a bit more and not feel the anxiousness of needing to, get to to meet all these standards and do these things. And, and this is, you know, one of the core things that you, if we look at the research, mindfulness helps us relax. It helps us feel more regulated and, and it kind of builds our sense of well-being. Um, it, you know, if we want to talk about um, building our capacity to have better kind of um, communication with our colleagues, you know, a more peaceful staff room, um, mindfulness really helps us learn how to, uh, to be to be nicer to each other, to be able to attune to each other better. Um, there's all of these different inner practices that mindfulness. So we really begin with the teachers, both so they can you know not you know teacher burnout is such a huge thing. Like how can we help teachers feel this kind of feeling resourced? Um, and that's really the, the 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 core of what mindfulness teaches. So before we get to like that, they have to memorize something or do something else. This is brought in as a self-care tool for teachers like hey let let us help you um you know just just feel better and and there's some research that's coming out now around mindfulness practices where they're actually the mindfulness is just being taught to the teachers and not being taught to the kids and the amazing thing about this research is of course we see that you know the teachers feel more regulated and calm and happy and all that um but we also see the students are doing better. The students are more calm. The students are, are more present. Um, 
not because we've taught them mindfulness, but because the teacher is more present and is kind of teaching them how to be attuned by being attuned to them. Um, so that's really the that first step. So they don't have to even think about how it fits into Common Core. They don't even th- have to think about fitting it into their workday. It's just how do we do some teach these basic ways to feel better in ourselves. Once once that's together, um, you know, in my books, in my in my trainings, there's all different types of ways that we can teach um, teach these to kids. And, you know, there's different levels of it, whether some, sometimes it can just be taking, taking mindful moments, you know, in the beginning of the day, throughout the day, just to pause, to reflect, to, to ground ourselves. Um, and then there's many more things, uh, many more types of lessons that are really more specific of how to help kids uh, feel more relaxed, how to help kids uh, develop empathy, how to help kids do these specific things that, uh, that um you know, every administrator, every teacher would like their kids to be able to build these inner skills. I really appreciate that idea. We're not just trying to communicate a curriculum that teachers then pass on to students, but we want to foster buy-in and uh, convey a strong rationale so the teachers will be living this way and they'll be modeling that uh, regardless of whether or not they're teaching it explicitly. Yeah, we don't want teachers yelling at kids to be mindful. That, that's not going that <laughs> to work very well. Exactly. Earlier, you mentioned that uh, that some people might think mindfulness and focusing our attention are one in the same thing, whereas focusing is actually just part of being mindful. Um, other parts might include cultivating an awareness of our bodies and developing compassion. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what are some ways we can do all of these things. I'd, I'd love to. In, in my in my um, the workbook that I've just published, um, I, I go into the five literacies of mindful learning, and I'll just explain those because um, I think it's 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 a really important thing when we're looking at mindfulness in a kind of wider angle. Um, so the first literacy is is of our bodies, so being aware of our physical sensations, our stress, our relaxation, how to be more present in our bodies. Um, the second one is our attention. So that's the focus. Um, so being mindful of our minds, basically, of our thoughts, of our, um, you know, all of the ways that, that we get caught up um, in, in, in our thinking. Um, and then the third is the uh, literacy of our, of our emotions. So, and I actually do those first two. So, you know, once we're aware of the experience of the body, we're aware of how our mind is working then we can build it into what I think is actually one of the most important things we can teach kids through mindfulness and adults is in the emotional literacy, um, we teach them to notice the way their minds kind of ruminate and spin. And when they're actually, when you can catch that, when you can notice, oh, my mind is like spinning in anxiousness or anger or whatever it is, and you can notice that, and then you can actually go down into your body and see, oh, where am I, where is that in my body? You know, often our stomach is tight or there's butterflies in our chest or whatever it is. And, when, and then what you do with the, with the kind of um, what we call heartfulness practice is you bring this kind of compassionate presence to how your body is feeling dysregulated, which brings this really deep sense of, of um, relaxation, of nurturing. Um, and then instead of just spinning in our head and maybe being angry, um, usually we try to fix things by thinking about them, which doesn't usually work very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but if we can actually go into our bodies and bring some sense of kind of regulation through these practices, it's, it's a very profound um, sh- shift 
that that we you know I think if all people politicians and um, everyone knew how to do this to, to notice when we're caught in our thinking and our worries and our anger and be able to regulate ourselves, um, it would probably change the world. Um, so you know we teach them these emotional literacy practices to be able to be more compassionate, more empathic, more regulated, and then we move further from there. Like once we're helping kids be pay attention and. Um, be more relaxed and, and compassionate. Then we move to the social literacy. And in social literacy, um, we really are, are teaching kids how to be mindful of the world all around them. So how are you, how do you see, how do you see others? You know, there's an amaz- amazing research coming out showing how um, people who practice mindfulness are actually less biased, uh, racially biased. So they actually develop less assumptions about others. They can see the world more clearly because they're they're being able to see through their kind of projections. Um, so it's, of course, for now, you know, in, in this time, working with diversity, working with bias, it's, it's a profound thing for us to be able to teach kids how to be able to, to be more um, understanding. Um, and we also do a lot of communication practices, uh, counsel practices. We sit once we're aware of ourselves, then we learn how to sit with each other and be able to share from our hearts, to be able to talk about what's difficult. Um, and then the, the fifth literacy is, is the um, what I call global literacy. And, you know, in that, we're actually learning to be mindful of our impact on the world and the world's impact on us. And so it really develops our capacity to not just cognitively, you know, think about politics or the news around or something like that, but to really be able to feel it and to really be able to be more engaged and eventually to become um, like an ambassador of mindfulness to be able to bring this compassion and presence uh, forward. Um, so, so definitely, as you're saying, you know, we each of these different things, like the paying attention, we talk a lot about how we tell kids to pay attention, but we don't tell them how to pay attention. So we build those attention muscles by, you know, what, let's say we're using our eyes to focus on something, and then every time our eyes get distracted, we pull it back to the thing. So we keep, you know, we, we play distraction games where we try to, distract them and they try to keep their focus on saying so that we build our focus muscles there but then we're also building these other we're building our compassion muscles we're building our non-reactivity muscles we're we're going into different inner skills and doing these very direct practices to see how we can relax our bodies um, be aware of our assumptions of others um, so so all of the different and one other connection to it is that you know social emotional learning is a bit, another big buzz in a lot of different school systems. And social emotional learning is amazing, and it's been around a bit longer in a kind of systematized way in schools. And, and in a lot of ways, mindfulness and social emotional learning dovetail really beautifully because social emotional learning is talking about all of the same skills and aspects that we're wanting to be able to help kids develop. But then mindfulness actually is like it's like the, the training room. You know, you're actually building the specific muscles that social-emotional learning is pointing at. The way you distinguish between the two is, is, is actually really helpful for me. I'm wondering if, if you would be able to walk us through one of your favorite activities or lessons from the workbook. I would, I'd be more than happy to. One of the things that um, is important to, to, to do in these practices um, is when, whenever we're going to go in, especially to the emotional realm, it's really important to understand how to kind of bring in a sense of relaxation and regulation uh, if we're going to 
feel something that's a little bit difficult. So this is, it's a very important thing that in my longer trainings I really go into. If we're, if we're inviting people to feel sadness or anger or dysregulation, we want to do it in a very contained way because, um, you know, it's, it's a vulnerable thing to do. So what, what I was thinking I would teach us is the thing that I na- just named before is around being aware of our ruminating thoughts or our spinning, like I call it with kids, like the hamster wheel of thoughts, um, and then being able to notice where it, we can actually feel that in our bodies. Um, but when I do that, what I always like to do first um, is what I call the vacuum cleaner breath. Um, and the vacuum cleaner breath, what it is, is we can kind of track through our bodies and anywhere that we feel like a little tension or, or dis-ease, um, we can breathe it into the vacuum cleaner, which is in the pit of our belly, and we can breathe it in and hold it there for a few seconds, and then when you breathe out, you just totally let it go. So um, wherever you are, if you're sitting, um, if you're standing, however you're listening to this, what you can do is... First, you can just kind of see if you can do a little scan through your body, maybe from the top of your head down through your shoulders, just noticing along the way if you can feel any tension anywhere, any holding, any agitation, and just kind of slowly sweep down through your body, through your arms, through your chest and torso, just noticing if there's any tension, any holding. I'm not trying to get rid of it, just kind of noticing it. And just keep going down through the hips, down through the legs, and just checking anywhere in the body, is there any place that you're holding stress? And then what you could do is you could take a, a nice long inhale, and every time you breathe in, you can draw any tension, any difficult feelings into the pit of the belly and hold it there for a few seconds. And then on the exhale, just take a big sigh and relax it all out, just kind of like melting everything in your body, breathing out any of the stress. And then we'll just do that a few times. Every time you breathe in, kind of scanning down through the body, noticing if there's stress anywhere, imagining you're breathing it into a vacuum cleaner in the pit of the stomach, and then as you breathe out, fully relaxing it. You mentioned some some specific practices in the way of mindful education for, for teachers to use in their classrooms, uh, those being the council practice, peace corner, and mm-hmm. making classroom agreements. Can you give us an, an overview of each of those? Sure. Um, so council practices are, and council practice is something that uh, if people are more interested um, in it, there's an organization called the OHI Foundation. I believe it's O-H-A-I. Um, and they have whole books of council practices um, that, you know, and trainings to go even more in depth. For, I, I just kind of touch upon it a little bit in my book. But what, there's a lot of different formats to be able to, once you're, especially with the older kids get, but for all aged kids, when they're doing these practices, I really want to be able to uh, have them dialogue around it afterwards. So, you know, let's say the kids do what we just did, where we breathe, we're aware of some tension in the body, we relax. If we did this another, you know, longer, I would go more into being aware of the spinning of the mind and the difficult emotions and letting them go. Um, so what I, I would do is I'd usually lead a practice like that, talk about the theme, maybe tell a story, and then I'd bring them into a council practice. And in that, maybe there's, you know, just a, you know, a, a story and they all go around talking about it, or there's lots of different communication games where they're able to use a sentence stem to be able to open the dialogue, or they're able to, um, you know, just, just really learn how to open up 
through kind of communication games in a really authentic um, and compassionate way. Um, so if you're interested in counsel, I would, I would uh, in, in ways to be able to get a class to be able to communicate better, um, I, would, I would really uh, invite you to take that trailhead. Um, a Peace Corner is something that I've seen played with in lots of different ways. Linda Lentieri, who um, is an amazing, the Inner Resilience Program, she's an amazing social-emotional learning person who um, has really spearheaded this. And uh, I know so many teachers who do this where they create a corner of the room and the kids help to create it. And the, the kind of prompt for them is, you know, what in this space, what would you need in this space in order to be able to come here and feel really, feel really good, feel really safe? So the kids will create it. They'll put little sand things or little coloring books or, you know, all little beautiful scarves, you know, things that would help them feel relaxed and calm. Um, and what, what's really particular about these spaces is that the kids self-refer there. So it's not a place, it's not like the, the dunce corner where, you know, like you're, you're sent there because you've been bad. It really weaves together with mindfulness practices because mindfulness is all about um, inner regulation. And so instead of needing for us as the teachers to regulate the kids by, you know, sending them to the principal's office or punishing them or whatever, we're trying to teach them. And I have something in my workbook called the stress thermometer. So it teaches kids how to track where they are on the stress thermometer. And once they get to a certain point, you know, they know they can feel it in their bodies and they know whether they need to go to the peace corner or they need to go to their teacher or they need to be able to regulate themselves, which is so much easier as a teacher than over and over again needing to kind of go and regulate the kids. If the kids know how to regulate themselves, they'd rather not get in trouble um, if they have the capacity to be able to track themselves that well. So the Peace Corner is a great tool in that way. Agreements is also uh, a really potent way, and I know a lot of teachers do this in lots of different creative ways. But similar to the, you know, the self-regulation piece, what I find with teachers, is, I mean with our classrooms, is if instead of me just being the teacher who's saying these are the rules, um, if I actually invite the kids into a creative process where they're deciding we're deciding together what we're going to need in order to create a safe space. And since I'm the teacher, you know, I'll probably, I'll, there's some agreements which I need to, you know, just mine as the teacher. Like I'll say, hey, it's my job here to keep you all safe. You know, like I'm, I'm, I need you all to agree that, you know, you're not going to hurt each other or something like that. So there's some non-negotiables. But then from there I would say, okay, what, what would you need in order to feel safe? What would you need in order to feel really present, to be really mindful? Like if we're going to be doing these mindfulness practices, what, what would you need? And pretty much always the students will come up with, you know, I, I need uh, so that I, you know, I want to make an agreement that nobody makes fun of each other or something. And then it turns into amazing conversations. So I'm like, okay, do we have that agreement? And maybe one kid says, no, I like making fun of kids. And I'll be like, oh, really? Let's talk about this. You know, so we get into these really amazing conversations about what creates a safe space. And um, the kids then, if when the agreements they do come up with, um, they are more engaged in it. They feel like it's not just like a, a punitive system that they're – and then if a kid does break one of those agreements, it be can become something like – it can become a discussion. Like, oh, wow, we made that agreement and you broke that. Oh, do we need to re relook at these agreements? Do you not agree? You know, so it becomes something that I find students 
they rebel less <laughs> when they actually get to be part of the decision-making mm-hmm. process. Yeah, which is, of course, uh, true for adults as well. Definitely. I'm wondering when adults are talking with you and they're posing questions and talking about their challenges, are there any that, that come up more than others? Um, do you mean particularly challenges for, I mean, cause there's obviously there's the challenges. I guess I'll address both. There's the challenges for teachers about their own mindfulness practice mm. and there's challenges for teachers around, you know, what's hard about teaching kids. Um, one, one thing I'll just say about, um, I actually really like to think about them similarly. You know, we have the, an external classroom and an internal classroom. And I always feel like inside of myself, I have like the teacher's pet and the class clown and all of the different pieces that are, that are inside. Um, and usually what, what in both situations, what teachers find, whether it's in my, in their own practice or, or, or teaching their kids is that different types of resistance arises. Um, and, what I find, I like, I like to think of resistance to really shift the script on resistance so that resistance is actually just information. So, you know, if I'm teaching and there's some kids who are not engaged and who are kind of resistant, then that's information for me instead of kind of getting, you know, personal, like why is this kid, you know, not, you know, not listening to me or being rude or something like that to actually be really interested. Oh, okay. What is it about, you know, what's going on for him or about the way that I'm teaching or however that's happening, how can I learn how to attune to them better and engage with them better? Um, Often, I'll just use an example, like um, sometimes when you're teaching mindfulness, maybe, you know, you decide, you ask, invite the kids to sit quietly for a minute um, and maybe some of them start laughing. Uh, For me, what I'll actually do is I will say, Oh, I noticed there's some laughter. Um, if if there's some laughter, then what you can do is just notice what laughter feels like inside your body as it's happening. Um, and sometimes what will happen is kids, there'll be just a bunch of laughter, which I'm actually totally fine with, especially because after that, usually when I ask the question, I'm like, oh, so what was that like? I noticed people were laughing and kids will be like, oh, yeah, I, I noticed I was there was like this, like, it was like a soda bottle, like bubbling in my body and it was wanting to laugh, but I was trying to stop it. And I, and I couldn't help it. And it was popping out, you know, and you actually end up getting into these very deep conversations about kids noticing their inner world. And that's really, for me, what's interesting is to invite conversations, invite explorations about what's going on inside. And very often, it, the class won't look exactly like you wanted it to. But if you end up responding in a really compassionate and present way, it'll end up being uh, really insightful, both for the kids and for you. It's, it's the same for my inner practice. You know, often if a teacher is trying to develop their own inner mindfulness practice, if you sit down and try to, you know, in the morning sit for 10 minutes and just watch your breath or feel what's happening inside there's probably at times there's going to be resistance. There's going to be some emotion. Your mind might be spinning. And instead of that being a problem, what we can, what mindfulness practice is about is all about learning how to open ourselves and be compassionate to, compassionate to whatever's there. So it's like, oh, instead of thinking or, or anxiousness being a problem, it's like, oh, wow, anxiousness. Let me be present to the anxiousness and see what's going on there. This is, this is all just information about what's happening in my world. Well, Daniel, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I'm just going to ask you a couple more questions. 
First, what are three other books that you might recommend to our listeners if they've enjoyed your work and our conversation today? Um, so what I would recommend, there's a, there's a bunch of great books in this field. Um, I would recommend uh, Susan Kaiser Greenland, who's a wonderful author. She's about to come out with uh, a book called Mindful Games. Um, her other book um, is called The Mindful Child. Um, so she's a wonderful, um, a wonderful educator and um, mindfulness teacher um, and great author. Um, another mindfulness and education book uh, would be um, Building Emotional Intelligence by um, Linda Lantieri, who I mentioned earlier. Um, and then I'd also recommend, you know, if, if you're interested in your own personal mindfulness practice, uh, to check out some John Kabat-Zinn books. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a great place to, to start. So whether it is um, wherever you go, there you are, or um, uh, Full Catastrophe Living, um, John Kabat-Zinn, yeah, I think he has Mindfulness for Beginners. He has a bunch of books which are, which are great uh, personal practices. Finally, uh, what are you working on now, and how can our listeners follow your work? At the moment, I'm just launching um, a mindful education online teacher training. Um, and that teacher training is, it has lessons from myself. It has uh, Dan, Daniel Siegel, who's an, also another great person to check out his books on the neuroscience of mindfulness. And the other uh, authors I just named are part of the training, Susan Geyser Green, Lynn Linda Lentieri. There's a bunch of people who are part of this online teacher training. Um, you can go to mindfuleducation.com. That's mindfuleducation.com um, to learn more about that training, which is kind of the main thing that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm up to at the moment. It sounds like a great project, and so I, I hope it's a, a, a success for you. Daniel, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I've really enjoyed learning more about your work. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. <laughs> 